we're going to get into today's message, and it is all about the heart. So much of Scripture is about the heart. So really quick review, this whole section, we're making our way through the Bible, the big story in the beginning, the chosen ones, the kingdom of Israel. We are in the kingdom of Israel right now. So we're talking about the stories that happen during the kingdom of Israel, and we're going to be talking about Naaman. Now, there are, there is, we've talked about this the last few weeks, there is a rubric for how the kings of old fall. So when you read the stories in the Old Testament over and over and over again, you see these people, it's like, dude, why do you keep falling away from the Lord? Like things were going so good and you messed it up. And over the last couple of weeks, we've studied this in detail, and we even have shown how it overlaps with how Christians today can fall. And it's basically this. So how the kings of old fall, how we can fall. What happens? God identifies a new humble heart. I'm partially colorblind. Is that yellow? I think that's yellow, right? The yellow. Okay. Uh, uh, God identifies a new humble heart. So the Lord identifies a new humble heart. You might come before the Lord... And it's like your marriage is a mess, your finances are a mess, you're really scared, you're going through a hard time. You come before the Lord brokenhearted, and you're like, God, please help me. I'm battling with anxiety, I'm really angry, I'm in financial, I'm destitute financially, my marriage is falling apart. You come before the Lord brokenhearted, please help me. And then what happens is they gain affluence. God actually helps you. The kings of old, God actually helps them. And then when God helps them, as soon as things start getting better, what happens? They begin to have spiritual amnesia. It's like, man, when I'm brokenhearted, I come before the Lord. When I'm scared, I come before the Lord. I mean, some of you know this. When you're in seasons where you are really scared, not even sleep will keep you from prayer. But as soon as things start getting a lot better, what happens? They begin to have spiritual amnesia. And then from spiritual amnesia, they lean into arrogant autonomy. Now, you probably met these people. These are the people, again, how the kings of old fall and how we often fall. Arrogant autonomy is like, now I'm feeling good. I was really humble before the Lord, and now I'm starting to feel good. And so it's like I, I, I don't really I wake up. Well, I don't feel it. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like going to. I'm just going to do my own thing today. I don't feel like spending time in prayer. You know, God's good. God's good. And what you mean by that is now I feel good enough. I don't need to be with God. And so in that spiritual autonomy, spiritual amnesia, they lean to arrogant autonomy. Arrogant autonomy is the level now where it's like, Now you assume this, like, I'm above, and now it's a critical spirit is beginning to settle in. So now you walk in a church, or you walk before the people, and it's like, I don't like that song, I'm above that. Now you've literally changed from humble before God needing his help to, like, above it all, and now you can be critical and arrogant. This is how the kings of old fall. And then from a critical, arrogant autonomy, spiritual amnesia, critical, arrogant autonomy, cut off from the vine of life. Now it's like, they begin to separate themselves. Then what happens is they, they well, they, they, they fall. They, they fall. Now, theologians would say that this wheel right here, whole nations can do this. You can have the whole Israelite people, all of America, all of like, whatever, Britain, you name it, right? Like, groups or nations or tribes like you can have whole groups of people be humble before the Lord they gain affluence they have spiritual amnesia they lead into arrogant autonomy 
cut off from a vine of life, they fall. Whole nations can do this. With this in mind, let's move to today. We discover, of course, this is a little bit of review still, but with, we discover that our soul, our soul is not most at risk when we are desperate for God. We are spiritually most at risk when we think we don't need him. When you're humble and you're broken and you're contrite before the Lord, man, you feel weakest, but you're actually strongest when you're on your knees needing God. You're actually weakest when you might feel you're strongest. And you're above it, don't need it. Our soul is not most at risk when we are desperate for God. We are spiritually most at risk when we think we don't need him. All right, 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. We want to go here today. Before I read this text, let me offer you an idea. Humans, humans, are masters at trying to rebuild spirituality over and over again in ways that keep themselves as the king. Humans are masters at trying to rebuild spirituality over and over again in ways that keep themselves as the king. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I had a young man. Now, the, the truth is, I, this is like one of those stories that's like, I don't know if it's appropriate or not for a Sunday morning. So some of these stories, I'm like, oh, this is a great illustration. And I'm like, that's definitely not appropriate. Some of them, I'm like, it's barely, I don't know. This one, I don't know, okay? So I've used it a number of times already in services, so you're going to get it too. But in all, I'm not sure if this is appropriate or not, so bear with me. Years ago, when I was doing young adult ministry, um, I would often have young adults that would show up at the church in a really hard place, right? So trying to figure out a job, you know, add-ins with their parents. They've got a job. They finally got their degree, and now they don't like the job they have, you know, just wanting prayer. So I had a random guy, uh, I'd not met him before, come up to me and ask for prayer. This is a true story. After the service, he came up to me, and um, he was like, and he, he was definitely like a really cool guy, like just looking at him. He was a really cool guy. So bro, dude, man, yeah, you know, bro, dude, is that, that's not even a description, but you get what I mean, right? Bro, dude, yeah, man, bro, pastor, like, man, I just, <clears throat> would you pray for me? I don't know why I'm doing that like valley voice. And, bro, man, pray for me. I was like, okay, what do you want me to pray for? I was out a number of weeks ago and <clears throat> we got smashed and I was like with this person and I found out, here's the, I don't know if it's appropriate or not. I found out they have like a real serious STD, but he told me what it was. And he's like, I'm waiting on some test results and I'm real scared, man. I just want to pray that God would help me not catch that STD. Would you pray that I don't get this STD? So I was like, if kids don't know what that is, you can ask your parents later about all that stuff. I'm not going down that road. I told you it was on the edge. It was on the edge. This isn't on the edge, right? I pray that I don't get it. Okay, so, and then in conversation with him, this is, I'm like, okay, well, give me more. I don't need to know about how, but let me know where your heart is at. And this is basically what he said. He was spiritual 
and believed in the power of God, but he wasn't religious. And I was like, mm, okay. And of course, this has become really popular now. What did he mean by that? What did he mean? What does he mean by spiritual but not religious? And so I was kind of trying to like drill in, what do you mean by I'm spiritual but not religious? And here's, here's what he meant. And, and maybe this is you, I don't know. But this is what he meant without saying it explicitly. He basically, without saying it explicitly, was saying he wanted to use the power of God without submitting to the kingdom of God. He wanted the power of God without submitting to the kingdom of God. So basically what he was saying as I was praying, as he was wanting me to pray for him, and, and by the way, I, I awkwardly called it, this is, okay, don't come to me for counseling. I love you. I am a terrible counselor. My interpersonal skills are not the best. And so when I see something really apparent, I'll just say it. And I can make people feel bad without even meaning to. And then I realize, oh, that probably wasn't okay. Um, so, like, you need to go see people that are, like, gentle and really, like, super interpersonally self-aware. I can make you feel bad and not even mean to. So this guy, basically what I said to him, this is a true story. Basically what I said to him is, so you want me to pray that God would heal you so you can go back to living a life rejecting him. Like, you want God to heal you so you can go back to living a life that's rejecting him. It got real awkward, I think. I was having fun. So let me offer this idea, right? This isn't true of everybody, and I know not everybody lines up with that. But what if... What if, what if, the phrase, I am spiritual but not religious, what if for many people, for some people, what if I'm spiritual but not religious may be the same as you believe there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. Now hang with me for a moment. If you've read through the New Testament and the Old Testament, right, like, you know a lot of the interactions that even Jesus has with the demons in the New Testament, right? So we know the demons are not atheists. The demons are not atheists. They believe God is real. You also realize when you read Jesus' interaction with the demons, they not only believe that he is real, they believe that God is really powerful and really has control and they're really in awe of him and they even believe that he is good. So hold on a second. The demons believe there is a God. They believe he is powerful. They're you know, impressed with him and obey him at every turn. They, they are aware of the power of God, but they reject the kingdom of God. And how many times do we want to, it's like, man, we want the power of God poured out on us, but I'm going to reject the kingdom of God. And its ways and its nature and its systems and how we interact with people and how I view money and how I view sexuality. I'm going to reject the kingdom of God, but I really want the power of God. If we're being honest, like to varying degrees, this is true of everybody in this room at some level. Even me. To varying degrees, we all wrestle with this. This has always been the struggle 
We want to have the power of God without submitting to the kingdom of God. We want the power of God without submitting to the kingdom of God. This is what the kings were doing all the time in the Old Testament. That's what that young man did when he was approaching me. And it's what we do often too. We want the power of God, but we don't want to submit to the kingdom of God. 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. The text was read earlier. Let me tell the story again. This is a longer passage. I'm going to tell the first part of it and then read the last part. At this time in history, I like history, I'm a history guy. At this time in history, Israel and Syria are basically in this like tit for tat, back and forth war with each other. But it's not like all out war, it's more like we're going to raid them, so Syria raids Israel. And Israel gets really mad and they justify revenge back and they go and raid them and they raid back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. They're just constantly going back and forth at war with each other. One group always justifying attacking the other group, just like today with humans. And in one of the raids, there was a man by the name of Naaman. And Naaman is like this. I mean, literally the way it's worded in the Hebrew is a man of valor. Like he is this powerful warlord of Syria. And actually the way it's worded in Hebrew, it says the Lord allowed him to be that, which is super interesting. And they do a raid on the Israelite people. And so they come in and literally Naaman and his group, they come in and they pillage and steal and rape and kill. And in this pillaging and stealing and raping and killing, they abduct a little girl and take her away. And Naaman makes this little girl a servant of his wife in his house. Well, time passes, and Naaman, this powerful Syrian warlord, ends up getting really sick. Now, there's different kinds of skin disease, and we often just translate them into leprosy. But he got sick with some skin disease that is ultimately going to lead to his death, and he can't do anything about it. This powerful man with all this money, all this influence, all this favor, all this military might is exhausting every possible Solution and nothing is working. And so, this abducted girl, kidnapped from her home, basically raises her hand and says, Hey, there's a prophet in Israel, and I think he could heal you if my Lord would only consider it. Naaman's out of options. I mean, he's tried everything. All the Syrian doctors, Syrian methods, religious leaders. I mean, Naaman's tried everything. And none of his money, none of his might, none of his power, none of his prior physical prowess has given him the capacity to overcome this. Good luck translating that, Jorge. And so he decides to go and meet with the prophet. Let's pick it up in the text there. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And I just want to, again, a pastor reads like one section then talks too much. 
you got to see the awkwardness in this. And so the, the phrase with horses and chariots in Hebrew basically meant military might. So he's showing off. Maybe the way to envision it would be, I'm living in a suburban area. Let's say that a military guy wanted to meet with me. And he literally like pulls up in like an A1 Abrams tank. <laughs> military might, right? So chariots and, and so like he's showing up and like an Apache helicopter flies down on my neighbor. And my neighbor's like, what in the world is going on at the Kola house, right? And you know, military comes down and soldiers are lining up. I mean, like he comes with his military might. And with his military might, he walks out and he basically comes to the front door. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Now, now, this is offensive. I mean, imagine it in my home. So all of a sudden, all this military might, this really important person who's really powerful, shows up at my front door, knocks on my front door, and I'm like, eh. And I look down at my seven-year-old little girl, and I'm like, uh, go tell him he just needs to wash off in the retention pond behind the house. And my daughter's like, okay, she doesn't know who he is or care. So she's like, opens the door. It's like, huh, it's cool, helicopters. Uh, go wash off in the retention pond. See you later, you know. So how's Naaman respond? Elisha sent a message to him, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored. You shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. I mean, you can't talk to me like that. I deserve the highest of honor. Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord. He wanted some like big show. Oh God, in all your might and power, show yourself and make this powerful man who is unbelievably impressive clean. Now he got the little girl that's like, go to the retention pond out back. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out and to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abaddon, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not at least do it? I mean, you tried everything else. Every great doctor every great religious leader, every great medicine. You've tried every balm. You've tried everything. Will you not at least do this? Wash and be clean. So we went down. And now you got to remember, his spirit, his heart, he's mad, resisting, full of pride. And seven times in the Jordan, he washed himself according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. All right, a couple things I want to point out from this. Some of it I've already mentioned, but I need to make it crystal clear to understand the point of this message, the point of this story. The people of God, remember the big meta-historical situation. The people of God are continually rejecting, they reject embracing the heart of God, which is putting them in continual states of war and weakness. They're not representing God well, and it continually puts them in states of war and weakness. Now, remember this. Syria and Israel, we talked about this briefly a minute ago, Syria and Israel now have a long history of political tension and war. It appears, this is so important, again, it is so important to remember this, it appears one of the raids on Syria, a little girl was kidnapped. 
It's important to remember, just a bit silent, so let me lean just slightly academic for a second. We must be careful of what we call anachronism. And this is when we take like our modern view of the world and ethics and experiences and what, like we take our modern, there's a whole lot more to this, but we take our modern ideas and we want to just place them on historical events and judge and condemn when we really don't understand the complexity of what was taking place. And so I would just say in general, when you read the Old Testament and you come across something that's really complex or feels really off, it is worth doing your due diligence to do the historical work to understand the greater things that are taking place. Don't just sit in our modern day and age and judge the past. Do the research to understand what's taking place. At this time in history, there is a lot of geopolitical intensity. It's very complex. And the people of God, they're not just innocent bystanders. They've been doing a lot of really wrong things too. And half of the hardship that the people of God have had done to them, they have brought upon themselves because of what they were doing and how they were acting. It's complex. Naaman is a Syrian warlord who has seen the suffering and death of Israelites at his hand. He now, again, needs the help. The king of Israel will have nothing to do with it. The prophet is willing to help for the sake of Naaman and the sake of Syria's soul. All right, I was trying really hard to like think of a good metaphor or story or way to explain how offensive and how big of a deal this was. Maybe this works. Say there's a Muslim jihadist, right, like an extremist who has killed Americans and raided American villages and taken and pillaged and even kidnapped Americans. And say this Muslim jihadist extremist gets really sick with the disease and needs America to help him. In fact, if you read the larger text, the king of Syria does send Naaman first to the king of Israel. And he does what we would expect our people. I mean, if that happened and the like, extremist person who had killed and raped and pillaged Americans was to be like, hey, America, I need your help. I mean, the king in the text and even our, the, he literally says in the text, he tore his shirt in anger. He's like, who are you to come to me? What have you done? Look what you've done. Who am I to be the determiner of your life and death? If death has chosen you, let it take you. And then, I mean, again, for the sake of understanding, it's like it's a prophet, but it's like a pastor raises his hand and says, if there's any chance that this could deal with the heart of Syria, and the heart of this person, I'll help. I want to pause and make this statement really clear. God's goal, oh my goodness, my friends, don't miss this. God's goal is not the destruction of evil people, but the destruction of evil in people. 
God's goal is not the destruction of evil people, but destruction of evil in people. Another way to say it would be humans are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. Now, don't hear me wrong. There are many places, even in the grand biblical narrative, right? There are grand places in here where the scripture, God really does. It's like people have become so perverse and so lost in their sin. God determines it's better for all of humanity. It's like, we got to get them out of there. There are times God's like, all right, you're done. You've broken enough, you're done. You're, you're, you're finished. That does happen in the Bible. But the heart of God is to rescue people from evil, the evil that's in them. Listen to Ezekiel 33, 11. This is just so, so good. Listen to the heart of God. This is the heart of God. This is what he actually wants deepest, right? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back. That repeated phrase in Hebrew is really important. Turn back, turn back. It's like a really big deal. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For they will die. You will die, O house of Israel. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. So then the question is, and I'm going to invite Josh up. The question is this. How will God rescue Naaman? Here's what's going to happen. He's going to deal with the real problem which is his, it's, it's his proud heart. Every decision that's made in the text, how the prophet deals with the commanding general, every decision is a decision that forces Naaman to deal with his pride. He won't visit him at the door. He tells him to wash in the dirty river seven times. Can you imagine? Like Naaman finally is talked into this humiliating act. And he goes into this river, right? Like he'd much rather go back to his own clean rivers. And he dips in it the first time and he comes up and he's like, what am I doing? And he dips it in the second time and he's like, they, I can't believe these people talked me into this. You know, he dips in a third time and he's like, no, th- I can't let this word get out. I mean, if the people back home hear that I did this, I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, fourth and the fifth, I mean, it's like humility, 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 humility over and over and over again. Be humble, be humble, be humble. And the seventh time, it's not his skin that was washed clean first. It was his heart. His heart. His heart. His heart had to be washed clean. The skin was merely a metaphor of what God was doing in his heart, where the real brokenness was. My friends, our greatest wholeness isn't of our making. We can't make our wholeness, but in our relinquishing. The most alive and vibrant you could ever be doesn't come from something you can build. It doesn't come from something you can make. It doesn't come from something you can take. Life to the full forever comes simply from real surrender to the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
so that young man that came up to me that Sunday, yo, Pastor Mike, dude, bro, man, we pray for me. You know, I, I, I just, I was, I was smashed and I was like with this person and I, and I think I might have an STD and I'm waiting on test results to come back and just pray, pray that, pray that God will protect me. So you want me to pray that God would protect you? To keep living in rebellion to his kingdom? That's what you want me to pray? God, you want me to pray for him to protect you, to keep living in rebellion? That's what you want? I'm not a good counselor. My interpersonal stuff, you know, it's, my wife tells me how to feel and I believe her. Now, here's the really cool part of this story. Are you ready? Here's the really cool part. I called that young man out, and he began to share. He was like, my, my grandma, she was a Christian. I mean, my, my family that I grew up in was a mess, but my, my grandma's a Christian, and she would talk about that even as I was really wild. I, I, I think I really do want the kingdom of God, not just the power of God. And he ended up accepting Christ. I mentored him myself. And he's now a pastor today. You guys, to believe in God, to believe he is powerful, and to want his help is not the same as actually following him. Real salvation is a love and trust issue. It's a heart issue. God doesn't let you use his power to further separate you from him. In true humility... If the decision is made to relinquish pride, that's what's going on with Naaman, and actually follow Jesus, that's what's happening today, the deeper healing can come, which is, it's all about, it's all about the heart, your heart, man. If you live to a hundred healthy millionaire and your heart's wrong, you lose everything at death. If you die a little boy, in an unfair war, but your heart's right before God, you gain everything for eternity. It's about the heart. This is what matters most. Is your heart before the Lord. Maybe the way to say it would be this. The greatest healing for this young man that I was talking about was the same for Naaman and the same for you. Not the healing of your body. That's not the most important part but the healing of your soul. It's your heart. I'm not asking if you believe God is real today. I'm not asking if you believe God is powerful. That's great if you do. I'm not asking if you're even impressed with God, 
Even the demons do all of those things. I am asking if you really have decided to make him Lord of your life. Wanting the power of God is not the same thing as wanting the kingdom of God. I would love it if you would take out the next steps card, pull them out, get them out. And was it kind of a humbling act to reach for that? Just go back and listen to the sermon again this next week. Like, it's fine, you're fine. Take out the next steps card, just pull it out. And you need to know, I, um, every, every year I take time and I work on sermons for the year to come. And I'm about ready to do that again uh, in July. And like last year, I literally took all of the next steps cards, all of them that got to me, right? So I would say all of them, but probably one or two got lost there. I don't know. But all of the cards, all of the cards, I got them in my hand last year. I missed like 2,000 of them. I read through every one. Every one of your cards I read through. Every one. I wept. Some of you have terrible penmanship. (laughs) But I love you. My staff loves you. We care about you. We deeply and desperately want God to move. I want you to see the beauty of God so bad. And what you wrestle with and your prayer requests and the anxiety and the marriage tension and the financial difficulties, we pray for those because we love you. We love you. And I just want you to take some time this morning And whatever God's speaking in your heart, reflect on that. Do you need random prayer requests? Do you need to get baptized? You need, I love the baptism even in the name and story like that. The metaphor is just amazing. Well, you're going to be too proud to get baptized now. Maybe you need to be baptized. If you need to accept Christ, mark it on the card. If you need to rededicate your life, mark it on the card. If you need to get into a small, mark it on the card. I mean, just right now, go before the Lord. Lord, what does an act of humility before you look like? And reflect. I love you. All I want is for you to see the place where all the beauty comes from. Take some time and write. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps.